0: societal inputs tell you what you can be or what you cannot be. Yeah. And so girls that do not go into science or te- technical careers make those decisions based on those stereotypes and based on on, on the prejudices on, of what a woman can be.
1: Well, welcome everybody to The Sea Has Many Voices, and I am so excited to have my my friend uh, and someone I really admire, Dr. Maga Goal-Soler, I love her name. And uh, she's uh, we're continuing a conversation that we started with Ian on another segment. Um, and, Margaret, I want to talk about where we we, we, were, we started to talk about solutions. The show's about, the show's about a couple things. It's about the fact that, that we need to realize that the ocean and humanity share the same fate and that we need to work together. That's what the sea has many voices. We want as many voices as possible. And you made that point earlier about cross-disciplinary research, and I totally agree with you. My good friend Jared Diamond and I talk about that a lot, yep. that we have too many specialists, and uh, real breakthroughs come when you're willing to reach over and, and connect um, uh, specialists to achieve an outcome. Uh, and it's, it sounds so simple that anybody should understand it, but it doesn't happen out there in the world. Right. People are so siloed, as you said. And then the... Uh, yeah, the other third part of it is how do we uh, as a as a planet you know what when in there's you know 7 to 8 billion people on the planet now and uh, back in at the turn of uh, the early part of the 1900s i think i don't have the numbers in front of me but i think it was like a billion you know it, it, we we mm-hmm. we have just really grown fast right and it's it's like we're on a we're on a freight train it's going down a mountain And we're just gaining speed. And at the end, the track runs out Mm -hmm. and the train falls off the cliff. And we've got to work fast on this. And to work fast on this means talking and collaborating amongst nations, Mm because that's how how the planet sociologically organized itself. You know, we we humans uh, spread out and moved from a small village environment in Africa. I think the, we figured there might have been 2,000 of us at one point, and we have that spirit of exploration like you have, you're going down to Antarctica, and we just kept moving mm-hmm. around the planet looking for uh, new resources, new new interesting things. We were willing to take risks, and we ended up populating the whole planet now, including Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Antarctica was just in the last century that we have people there 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, so it was the last continent we are, we are, by the way, we are sitting along the coastline in beautiful uh, California. We have the ocean behind us. You'll hear some sounds in the background. That's just life here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, we, we spread around the planet. I'm just trying to get this, lay this out. And we're the same species. We're all, we're all related. Uh, and not, not just related to each other, we're related to the grass. Didn't we share <laughs> right. DNA with grass. I mean, everything on the planet is related to each other through through biological evolution. And then we broke ourselves off into tribes, and then they, the tribes eventually became countries. And now we have, it varies between 170 to 180 countries, I guess, something around there was 168. Um, and we've got to somehow get together and talk about how we're going to manage this spaceship that we're on, right? Because we are on a spaceship. Mm-hmm. We're on a spaceship Earth traveling 67,000 miles an hour right now around the sun. Everything we ever have, everything we ever will have is here now. And we've got to figure out how to use it.
0: That's the Carl Sagan...
1: Uh, Carl Sagan <laughs> and um, Buckminster Fuller right. uh, metaphor, which I, I love. Yeah, And we... We talked earlier in another segment about Antarctica and how it was a, a continent, a lot of people don't know, but it is a full, fully fledged continent down there. Uh, it's about the size of North America, if you were to stick it up and compare it. Uh, the only difference is it's got you know, three or four kilometers of ice on top of it, this glacial ca- cap, which is melting uh, in some areas uh, okay. faster than we want. Um, But it's a full continent. It's got oil, it's got coal, it's got uh, um, a lot of marine resources. And there was a treaty uh, back in the, was it 1960?
0: 59.
1: 59, it started in the International Geophysical Year, where uh, on the one hand, I studied that, uh, I got my master's in uh, in, uh, marine policy, and it was on Antarctica. And so it was Camilar, which was the convention on the conservation of Antarctic marine living resources. So I, I studied this quite a bit. A long time ago. And one of the reasons that, this, that everybody was willing to sign that treaty, which basically said, you know, for those people that haven't heard the other segment, it's this treaty that governs Antarctica says you can't demilitarize, for one thing. There's no military activity allowed. There's no extractive industry allowed. It's only science. And nobody owns it. Everybody owns it. And those principles uh, were able to, to be You know, people were put there. They signed that treaty back then because they didn't. They never imagined they'd ever go there to take anything. (laughs) For one thing, (laughs) I don't think the world would sign it today because there there are resources there that people want. But back then they figured, oh, nothing, nothing to lose. Let's just sign this treaty, and and it and it's worked. You know, that doesn't have any enforcement mechanisms. Um, It, but you know, we we don't have people violating it at any. High level, and it's one place where we do an okay job, I'll mm-hmm. say, an okay job of managing a big chunk of the earth collaboratively. Exactly. And it's a good model, and it's science-based, the language that, that doesn't lie and the language that you know all nations speak. But then there's the Arctic, on the other hand. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the Arctic?
0: Yeah. So many people think that the Arctic is just the opposite of Antarctica, and they could not be more different. Um, So, for a start, um, the Arctic is an ocean surrounded by land, right? And Antarctica is a continent surrounded by ocean. The second thing is that, the second difference is that uh, Antarctica did not have any indigenous peoples, as we uh, discussed in the the first segment. So, it was easy to, to decide that nobody owned it, because it was empty to begin with so it was much easier for countries to come together and say let's save this space for science and for international collaboration because they didn't have to deal with any local uh, communities but the arctic has indigenous communities and that really brings a whole new layer that happens not just in the arctic but in other parts of the world in how do we deal with um, our indigenous traditional communities that have been there for a a long time before us and know a lot more than we know uh, about the environment and and, and about how to manage it and and, and about solutions. So that's another big difference between uh, Antarctica and and the Arctic. And then the obvious, I would say, challenge that, that we see is that the Arctic is melting. So both poles are melting, but the Arctic is melting. And what that means is very different because that will open the channel for trade, right, and so the whole geopolitical landscape is built on our trade routes, if you will, that and who has nuclear weapons, which is also related to to mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. to the Arctic yeah. and so if you imagine a new silk road over the the Arctic with the u s uh, and China directly connected, and no basically no need for the Panama Canal or other. Um, trading routes that will fundamentally change our the entire economy, the supply chain and tra- supply chains and trade, and also it will probably open up the competition for the resources and fishing and extraction, but also the militarization of the Arctic. The Arctic, and so the Arctic, uh, there's no Arctic treaty that's equivalent to the Antarctic Treaty, but there's an Arctic Council right. that the the, the Arctic um, states are. As you say, I think about Antarctica, also it worked out pretty well until now. But what's different is that when the Antarctic Treaty was signed, 1959, as you say, countries did not imagine why they would need it for or <laughs> why they would. It, would they, it was very easy to sign up. Right, off. right. But now, for instance, China is a polar superpower. And when China signed the Antarctic Treaty, it was not a polar superpower. So now we have China already very strongly um, leaning towards... Are they? Um, yeah, so to, towards both the Arctic, which is more obvious, but also Antarctica. And so, in thirty years, the Antarctic Treaty is up for renewal, and there are potentially some parts of the treaty that might not stand yeah. with the new world that we are. Right? So we have the new science and technology. We have the new geopolitical landscape that was that's not the same uh, that we had in in in, in the in the fifties. So, how do we preserve this achievement for humanity, for the planet that's protecting an entire continent for science and peace in this 21st century when we have such a different um, context. And then I think more urgently is how do we um, manage the Arctic and how can we um, both stop the melting from happening right yeah. so that would be i would say the first uh, line of action but then if this happens um how do we ensure that the world doesn't fundamentally come into turmoil because of the competition on the arctic
1: yeah thank you that was a very informed overview of of high very high altitude sort of headlines about it and and i i kind of want to summarize it for for myself and our listeners that First of all, having ice is important for this planet. Uh, this planet has never been ice-free with uh, humans on it. And it's, it's part of the system that makes the ocean currents. Mm-hmm. It makes the kind of planet that we're comfortable with, and that we like. And once the ice goes away, or reduces dramatically, and, and it's melting very fast, everybody. It's melting faster than the models predict in Greenland yeah. And on the the uh, frozen sea ice on the Arctic, uh, the weather will change, and it's very hard to get that ice back. It doesn't come back quickly uh, because one of the one of the issues is that when you have ice, it's white, and that reflects sunlight and heat back out. But when the ice goes away, you have dark water, mm-hmm. and it sucks the heat into mm-hmm. the ocean. So it's kind of a runaway right. heating, warming. So. We really don't want to lose any more ice, everybody, because uh, it's, it's melting. Um, but the Antarctic Treaty worked, and there's no like, police officers down there or international sanctions about violating it. It just kind of works. And then on the other hand, now we have this very confused, competitive thing going on in the Arctic. Not only is the ecosystem falling apart as we know it, there'll be another ecosystem ecosystems don't go away they just change mm-hmm. and they're, you know they're, they're already coming up with fishery management plans mm-hmm. for fisheries that are not, that are not yet open because right. they know they're going to open as that ice melts right um, on the arctic is probably the it's the polar opposite uh, physically on the planet but also in terms of success i think there's uh, there's a lot of competition over everybody wants to extend their exclusive economic zones a little further to get some oil they uh, um, everybody 's butting heads and it 's not working, so I think there 's lessons there for us as a planet because we 've got to get our shit together. I mean, we really do we 've got to, it in our other conversation I had you we talked you talked about you know collaborating and talking and, and and I started this this little riff about the planet we organized ourselves into these number of countries, and that 's how we operate. We talk to each other and we make agreements, we try to stick to the agreements. Uh, those countries that have the biggest uh, guns and rocks and industries have more say over things. So there's this geopolitical balance that's mm-hmm. corrected for with economies and things. But we've got to get it together. We have to focus on what is important and agree to it and then carry through. And that's what the UN's for. And, you know, I know there's a lot of criticism about the UN mm-hmm. and that it's... A big bureaucracy, it's inefficient, but I, I always refer back to Winston Churchill where he said democracy was the worst form of government in the world <laughs> except for all the rest. Exactly. <laughs> and exactly. the UN's probably the worst way to run the world except for all the other options that we have. We don't have any other options. The UN is what we have. Yeah. So we gotta we gotta stick to it. And these, these treaties are the are the tools of our trade, I would say. The tools of our trade to, to get along. And and to make the right decisions, uh, on a planetary basis. Uh,
0: and, and I would say, that to add to that, multilateralism is what has brought us these successes in in, in environmental protection, um, because I think realizing that, um, for instance, is it 60% of the ocean that sit, sits outside of That's right. national jurisdictions, yeah. right? So it's not that it's nice to work with your neighbor in managing something, in, in some critical areas like ocean governance it 's imperative yeah because if not then you have if it fits if, it's, uh, if the high seas are not managed collect, collectively, then it becomes just another um, you know it perpetuates the superpower hegemony in which okay, if this is an empty space i 'll just go and take whatever because if I have the boats, if I have the capacity to go and and of course it will um, reinforce the inequality and and, yep. and the division of of the global south north Um, dynamic that we have so in in places like the ocean I think it's also where we can put a lot of messaging and storytelling because it's very obvious everybody knows that the ocean has things in it that move that cannot belong to a political boundary and so it is very um, the concept of science diplomacy comes very easy when you talk about air when you talk about water things that move things that are um, um, you know Moving between or yeah. across boundaries, and you can't just say, "Okay, my exclusive economic zone is this distance," and then um, yeah. you know I cannot confine all my all of my resources inside because there is no fence, there is no border. So it's a good, I think, symbol for what we're trying to achieve here. And in in that sense, I think the the um, optimistic, uh, and you know, probably know more about the the status is the new treaty, the, the BBNJ. Yeah right? So yeah. how, how's that for, because there has not been a, a treaty like that for 20 years or so, right? It, how yeah. is that a breakthrough and what, what it yeah. gives us?
1: No, you, um, you know, Marga is a science diplomat, everybody. And she's <laughs> mentored me in this area, uh, in the sense that it's what I've been doing my whole life, but I didn't know it <laughs> until she told me that I'm doing science diplomacy, which is to try to get things done, uh, on evidence-based arguments and, uh, stay away from politics and religion. Um, and you can make progress if you do that, uh, in the international community. And you've just asked about the law of the sea and the, and the high seas, and you know, that things are still happening on the planet in terms of, uh, uh, opportunity to get, to keep getting it right. The law of the sea was a very interesting construct. that was, uh, it was, it was thought about for a couple of decades, several decades. There were other treaties that kind of led up to it. And then it was, uh, it was signed in the eighties and then ratified in the early nineties, basically. And it was uh, the first the, the first uh, well, I was going to say the first draft, but the Law of the Sea, the final Law of the Sea, did a really good job at defining who owned what. Mm-hmm. That's basically what the first right. did. And then it it's a good document. It's a really good document. And then it it opens up opportunities for further generations to do the rest of the work. Right. <laughs> like how do you use what you own and yes. how, do you, how do you manage what everybody owns? Because right. there's parts of the ocean that everybody owns, the high seas, and then, and then each nation gets to own 200 miles out from your coast. So every country that borders the ocean has another 200 miles that they own, which is the ocean they own all the, th- anything in the water column and they own anything on the seabed. They, there are some p- special provisions that ships can pass through your water it's called the right of free passage, which is another component of the law of the sea. So it's hard to restrict people from doing that. Mm-hmm. But you own it; it's as good as as good as land. And now there's a, a work on the high seas, and everybody says that our policy wonks we call them policy wonks that that work on this stuff. The policy wonks say this was the unfinished part of the law of the sea. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> they kind of left that. They they right. they got okay. We <laughs> figured out what everybody owns, and then they said. And we're going to put the high seas away. Put, yeah. We'll just do that later. Right. And later is now. And it's going to probably come to ground over the next year or two mm-hmm. uh, with some uh, clarity over what we do with. Now, for those of the listeners that are good with numbers, think about this. 70% of our planet is ocean. And 60% of the ocean is owned by everybody together. And the question Margaret posed to me is, you know, how do you manage that? that resource that everybody owns, that is also critical to maintaining the life support systems on our spaceship Earth that we live on. And I don't know all the answers, but I I do know that we've got to uh, figure out ways for the ocean to regenerate, not just sustain the use of it. That's a big change now. We used to say, as long as it was sustainable, it was okay. Well, that's not the case anymore. You've got to, it's gotta be, it should be better on balance for the planet overall when you when you're done, that's the goal of projects like drawdown mm-hmm. and uh, and regenesis or regenerative thinking. So that if you <coughs> if you make a uh, a building now, okay, it doesn't have any carbon emissions, and maybe the concrete also absorbs CO two from the atmosphere, so it actually draws down CO two. Uh, that's the kind of thinking. And in the ocean, uh, it might mean that if you have some I'm just making this up on the spot but let's just say you've got a farm and it's got some uh organic uh runoff organic material that used that used to go into the ocean and just cause eutrophication. Maybe they consolidate it and feed it to a fish farm next to the uh next to the terrestrial farm that would be a uh regenerative or more of a an additive use where you think it through and you don't uh you don't uh, lose opportunities, and you you do some engineering on right. the problems. Um, so I'm I'm optimistic that we're going to get that right. I hope, uh, and uh, it's uh, a lot of opportunity for any any uh, any young women out there. And that's another theme that I I want to talk to you about is uh, we talked about a little bit in the other segment is is the opportunities that are opening up uh, now for women. And I. Uh, you're you and I'm sure that you know you're 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 a you're a model you know and do you have experiences do you have a lot of Mm -hmm. young women coming to you saying how do I how do I do what you do and tell me about that
0: yeah thanks thanks Rick it's 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 really true that I think um, we're going we're, we're moving towards a place where we won't call women science, we won't say we won't, this see, is we a, won't say it's a woman this, yeah. this, this is not a woman scientist, this is a scientist yeah, right, yeah, yeah, and yeah. there will be no distinction I that's think right. that's what we need to to work towards right, yeah. and, and so absolutely, the more I think um, visibility for role mo- from role models that we can have, for especially for young girls, we were talking about this with Christine earlier, like there's an age that women or girls, because societal um, inputs tell you what you can be or what you cannot be. Yeah. And so this is in the, in the early um, teenage years, right? So there's a lot of, um, I think, a big part of girls that do not go into science or te- technical careers make those decisions based on those stereotypes and based on, on, on the prejudices on, of what a woman can be and so having those examples out there making them visible and really um first empowering individually girls that you can be what you want yeah. you can be what you know all of the the mantras uh and that you can be you can't be what you can't see so you have to have the role models out there so then you can see yourself reflected in you them can,
1: you can't be what, what you can't, can't see be. exactly like
0: okay. and so if you First, you have the role models. They have to be diverse. So if the role models are diverse, any girl from any background, from any country, will identify with them, right? So we want to have diverse and inclusive leaders, women leaders, that can serve as role models. But then we also have to change what the systemic or structural barriers are. So it's not about individual action. It's really um, a a parallel with climate change in, in a way that, uh, this is something Cristiana Figueres um, says, and she says, for a long time we've only used fifty percent of our talent. So women are fifty percent of the planet, but we have not included them in the way that, in, at the level that, 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 the potential that we that we should. And she draws a, a very interesting parallel with uh, energy and renewable energies. So it's like we have this unlimited supply of sun and waves and wind. And we just haven't been using it, right? Mm-hmm. And we choose to use something that will um, run out versus something that's an unlimited supply. And so she compares renewable energy with the um, inclusion of women in the decisions that change that shape our planet. and I think the two connected is really what's at the basis of this Antarctic program that I'm on, and how do we bring more women and their leadership style into the conversation about planetary sustainability and and Facing the climate crisis, who,
1: who who are your who were or who are your heroes? They don't have to be women or men, just heroes. Like, like you said, it's not a woman; it's a scientist. I'm talking yeah, about a hero. Yeah, I don't care yeah exactly. The, yeah,
0: who, so I've been very inspired by people who were not following traditional paths, right? So my training as a scientist was just regular laboratory molecular biology training, uh, but I felt like that kind of path was. You know, everybody was going through that, and I wanted to be different. So I've always looked for references, and many of them I'm very lucky to have as mentors, and and women, um, especially women in uh, Latinas and women in science that uh, come from a similar background. So they were the ones that I saw myself reflected. I could probably one day, uh, you know, achieve what they have achieved. And so some of them are not famous, like not famous as you would see them on TV, um, like Frances Colón, yeah, yeah. who was in the State Department. Oh, yeah, one they to, don't have to be famous. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mandy Holford, who's a marine biologist that you met in Trieste when yeah, we were there. Yeah. We have a picture with her. So these are examples of women who are diverse, who are brilliant, who are uh, breaking ground in their fields. And they have, you know, inspired thousands and, and of, of of women, and I'm one of them. So now I want to think that, I am also in that place where yeah, are. a lot of you, you, you know emerging um
1: it's a responsibility you have now women
0: are coming to me and I, I feel like that's also the goal of this um homework bound expedition it's about leadership and about visibility so if you get the visibility uh, through this hype profile platform um, and high visibility platform then it's going to be much easier to reach and for others to know that your career can also be their career and so in in a way I like to think that I'm I'm not following any anyone's steps but the mindset of always trying to look for what's not um, yet explored is what really brings me here and what I've seen in the in the women that I admire and I would called my, my role models. And, and so if you ask me what's, kind of, you know, a lot of people ask me for career advice and I'm really not good at that because career advice sometimes sounds like, oh, I've got it figured out. Here's my 10-year, you know, track uh, or <laughs> documented um, yeah. um, process that I can share with you. But actually a lot of it is really about being entrepreneurial and it's being about uh, connections and the fact that we're sitting here today in in, in L.A., after having you know worked together in Washington and in Italy. And, and these are all connections that you could not design. So there's no, I, w- I would say, there's no world in which I could design meeting Greg and Christine and then sitting here today in in. <laughs> you're in, in, you're in a very smart person. In the, way you're,
1: the way your mind puts things together.
0: Right. And so I think that's the key. When you also, because looking at the, the science diplomacy, Conversation. Yeah. We need more scientists in the diplomacy world. We need more diplomats to understand how science can help them. But there are few people who are sitting at this boundary. So one thing that I would like to do from now on is to find a way to place more people at the boundary. People like you, people like me, people who can speak to the scientific community with authority because we have PhDs and we have, you know, all, yeah. the, all the checks that, Check that, the, boxes, that yeah. the academic community requires of yeah. us to take a seriously. Even
1: though PhDs <laughs> aren't all what they're pumped up to be, everybody. <laughs> <Keep going>. Right.
0: <laughs> but then we also have reach and access and credibility to the policy and the diplomacy communities, right? So um, you as a science advisor for a government, you know exactly how to talk about science in a way that it will resonate, because many scientists do not communicate in a way that resonates with the decision makers. And that's this big, gap so you've been very successful in, in, in arranging these coalitions to, to achieve um, uh, diplomatic outcomes and I think it comes to positioning yourself at the boundary and knowing how to speak the science language, how to speak the diplomatic yeah. language
1: I agree with you. There is a boundary. You're right. I love talking to you. I would learn things about myself talking to you. <laughs> this is like a and I know. I know. Freudian <laughs> Look at I'm tired of exercise. Talking. I'm tired of talking about myself. Let's have find out what you think about me. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, um, the working at the boundary, you're right. And that's what uh, I've done. It's what you do. Uh, and, you know, you said something earlier. You can't do what you can't see. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm always I'm fascinated at what it is that gets people going in their careers, in their mm-hmm. lives. For young what is it that gets people going? Because you know, um, I get people coming to me as well, a lot, young people. And it's usually something along the lines of, how do I do what you do? Right. It's, that's kind of how it's phrased usually. Because what they see is somebody that's out diving in the ocean a lot and writing books and National Geographic articles. And right. you see me on Shark Week and Discovery Channel or something like that. And I have a little trick question that I ask them that maybe you might want to use, too, if you, if, you, if, you, if you like it enough. I say, have you ever thought about doing anything else? And if they say, yeah, I have thought about being a, you know, a medical doctor or mm-hmm. architect or things. But I want to consider your career, too, along with the others. And I said, do one of the others. <laughs> <laughs> but if they say, I've never thought about anything else but this. That's the magic answer. Mm-hmm. I say, you're going to be fine. Do it. You're going you're gonna to end up doing exactly what I do if, if, that's what, if that's how you're put together in your head. And that's what it really is. It's about the passion. At least this is how I see it for yep. people. You, finding the passion and following your passion. And I, I see a lot of people you know, later in their careers regret that they didn't follow their passion. They ended up afraid that they weren't going to make enough money or something. And they ended up someplace else. Right. But if you really want it, and it's all you can think about. It will happen, everybody out there. Okay, I, I guarantee it. If you're if you're a young person thinking about a career in oceanography or science diplomacy, and it it's it's got a fire inside you and you think about it all the time, seven days a week, it'll happen for you. That to me, that's the biggest driver. And but but you also talked about people that were mentored you, and that's that's another incredibly important thing that I I like to see people get, right. and I feel sorry for people that didn't get it mm-hmm. and i i do meet people that never had because the first time and a mentor everybody is, is somebody outside your family mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of a prerequisite because who pays attention to you or it teaches you and you suddenly see things in you that you didn't even know were there because that right. person sees them and they and if they're a great mentor they draw you out and they develop you and i was i've been the luckiest person in the world with mentors you know I, I always like to bring uh, Teddy Tucker into the room. Uh, he's like my second father. He, I met him when I was a teenager, and he was a great treasure diver in Bermuda. And uh, he just passed away seven years ago, and he taught me more, and led me more, and gave me more. But he's the reason I went to Antarctica. I was, <laughs> I was down in Bermuda d- diving with him, and Bill Hamner, the scientist, was there, and Teddy said, you've got to meet this young man, Bill, and next thing I know, I'm on a boat to Antarctica, and I was like 21. Um, <laughs> And I've had others, uh, but it, it's, it's really that, and I, and I like to try to create environments where, where that can happen for young people.
0: I, I completely agree. I think you made a very important point, is, is when you were asked when you were 21, you want to go to Antarctica. So that moment when you are presented with an opportunity, being able to recognize it and to catch it and go with it, yeah. I think that is the key. So if there's one piece of advice, uh-huh. is that you cannot design the strategy to get, somewhere and if you try to design it too much then you will miss out on opportunities that come well, in front of you but you don't see them
1: it's funny you say like because one of the things teddy t- told me he said to me I, some of the many things he said he said greg he said, don't ever say no <laughs> he said if you're asked if you're asked to anything say yes first yes because if you say no too many times they'll stop asking
0: <laughs> and that's a, a good advice also for women <laughs> because particularly women tend to have imposter syndrome and that's Sometimes a barrier, What right? is this? What is Imposter is it? syndrome.
1: Uh, I don't know what that... Oh. It's,
0: it's this idea that you think that you are not good enough for an oh. opportunity, so oh. you kind of discount yourself first. So if you ask me, do you want to go diving right now? And I, of course, don't have a, the conditions. For, like I don't have the, the suit. I don't have maybe my license with me. That I, I would find so many reasons to say... No, Greg, you know, let's do it next year or, you know, let's find another time. And having, changing that, you know, kind of frame and saying, yes, what do we need to do? And then you will say, okay, you need a suit, you need a, you know, tank, whatever. And then we'll go and find it and see whether we can put together that, uh, you know, assemble what we need to go diving. Instead of saying, oh, no, I cannot do that. And then discounting myself from the from the from the scenario so in in the in in a career perspective is the same thing so when you are offered or when you when there's an opportunity in front of you that you think you're not qualified you as a woman tend to discount yourself or list all the reasons why you are not qualified right instead of speaking the one or two things that perhaps you do meet all the criteria and 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 then trying to build on those and there's
1: science around this being a gender thing
0: um, I think, yes, but it's, it's, it's a, of course a um, societal condition. Yeah, you oh, it's know, created by society. Condition, right, exactly. Oh, studied it. Huh? And yeah. then when you do you know the, um, the research on, oh, the CVs of these two people, one woman, one man, are ident- identical, but they are you know, uh, assessed differently. And so women are perceived as less competent. So it's not that it comes out of the blue, it's like women have faced barriers for the same job to get the same salaries and all of that, yeah. and they have systematically been discriminated. So, of course, that will bring you some doubt. And, you know, after a, yeah. few, a few times of being perhaps not uh, treated at the same level as an expert as a, you know, when you're looking for a job, then that, that kind of gets built in it's, you.
1: It's, you know, it's, it's you said it's sy- systematic. It's also systemic. Right. Uh, and I'm, I'm still appalled. When I when I see it in t- at times, uh, I was talking to Christine earlier today about a, a, fr- a friend and a colleague, a scientist, a woman scientist, and when I discovered what she was getting paid, how much less it was than others, mm-hmm. and it was she, and it was only because she was a woman, and she also happened to have a very youthful kind of way of being. So she and she comes across like an excited teenager, but she's a very smart phd researcher you know published and she was paid like half what the men were being paid because of because of that that frame that she she that she fit in um so it's 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 around and uh it's still happening uh although we're making progress and i think you're uh what's the name it's called homeward homeward bound oh homeward bound okay and uh, we'll, we'll make sure that we put uh material up uh, on that because you're, you're a nonprofit enterprise and you guys are trying to raise some yeah some, it's, it's some
0: a it's a fundraising exercise that's also interesting from the women's leadership perspective it's that like every participant every every expeditioner has to fundraise her participation yeah. and so it's not it's a, this is not like a fellowship that you are selected and everything is paid for but i think the the, the hidden intent in the program that's not been revealed yet to us is that at the end of the 10 years, it's 100 women per year, so we'll have a, a network of 1,000 women from all over the world. And I think the ability to raise money for yourself is a very important skill. It's a very important exercise, especially when you want to have a political, like if you want to run for office, for instance, right? So this is another gendered um, issue. So men are good at asking for money for, them, for themselves. Like if you are pitching to an investor... Uh, you say, hey, I have this idea, it's awesome, I'm awesome, why don't you fund me? Right? Right. That's easier for men to do right. in general. So this is all, of course, a generalization. There would be women that are very comfortable yeah, doing yeah, it yeah. and men who are not comfortable. But in general, you see how, for instance, 95% of venture capital goes to men in Silicon Valley, right? And so this idea of funding, uh, of fundraising for you, it's still uh, more of a barrier for women. Women yeah. are good at, at um fundraising for a cause for a research project like getting grants like there's no problem when the object is external right but if you put yourself in front of investor or or um, a panel and say give me money because i have a good idea and it's awesome oh no
1: i've I've seen it in my in my management career you know managing women who were not aggressive about asking me for raises as the guys are Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. i would have to give them raises because right. I'd, I'd, I I'd kept things in my management regime, you know, right, gender neutral, right, and they, they'd always be like, they'd always be like embarrassed and say, "You need, you, you're getting a raise, you know. <laughs> 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 you, you're supposed to be asking for them, but yes. you're not yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for whatever no. reason. But I'm giving you a raise, you know." Um, so that uh, that's key, and you know, you you said uh, something earlier, uh, which I'd like to sort of bring us to ground on. Where you said you can't do what you can't see, it reminded me of. Uh, one of the most quotable people in the world Jacques Cousteau Mm -hmm. relative to the ocean and He said uh, people only protect what they love Mm -hmm. and they only love what they understand and uh, I've I've added to that to say and they only understand what they see Mm -hmm. so I think uh, You know whether it's visual or if you're vision impaired you can see it and feel it in other senses the the uh, seeing the ocean or seeing a career path of what you can do, uh, are both both transformative. So I want to thank you for that philosophy, and I want to thank you so much for what you do. And uh, you know, you, you you've enriched me today as you've enriched me in our work together. And uh, I'll have you back ag- again mm-hmm. uh, to talk to finish off some conversations. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, thank you, Greg and the team for having me.